From Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, Gary Holt, and this is the Campfire Cafe on Equestrian Legacy Radio. This is a song that we learned uh, from a fellow named Steve Young who uh, lived in San Diego. This is called Seven Bridges Road. I hope you like this. There are stars in the southern sky Southward as you go There is moonlight and moss in the trees Seven bridges roll Now I the Eagles, Seven Bridges Road, and I'm your host, Gary Holt. Welcome to the Campfire Cafe for Thursday, January the 26th. We've got a great show lined up for you today in our first segment on the Campfire Cafe. Our special guest is songster and cowboy poet Andy Hedges, and then stay with us for Saddle Up America in the second hour when we'll be talking with Fred Wall, chairman of BLM's National Wild Horse and Burrow Advisory Board. That will be on Saddle Up America beginning at 1 o'clock Central Time. 
But we want to thank our sponsors in the general store where you'll find everything for the horse lover and folks that love the Western and equestrian lifestyle and our legacy select horse campgrounds and guest ranches. For the finest riding destinations in North America, be sure and check out our legacy select horse campgrounds and guest ranches. And you'll find all of those fine sponsors on our website at equestrianlegacy.net. Now grab a big cup of coffee, take a deep seat in the saddle, and when we come back, we'll be talking with Andy Hedges on Equestrian Legacy Radio's Campfire Cafe, heard around the world, streaming live, online, and on demand at equestrianlegacy.net. Andy Hedges is a songster who performs works in the great folk tradition. His wide and varied repertoire includes classic cowboy recitations, old cowboy songs, dust bowl ballads, and blues. Andy taught himself to play the guitar when he was only 14 and began collecting classic cowboy poems and traditional cowboy songs. 
Don Edwards says of Andy that he makes no claim to being a cowboy, but he has the cowboy spirit, integrity, and the heart that makes his music so undeniably real. Andy could very well carry on the traditions when us old guys are gone. I'd feel assured in knowing the music of our great American West was in good hands. Andy Hedges, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Gary. It's a honor to be on your program. Well, we're glad to have you, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about your radio program or your podcast that you're doing. But right now, tell us a little bit about you and uh, where you're from and how you got started in uh, cowboy poetry and music. Well, I live out here in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, I grew up kind of in this area. I grew up in a little place about 60 miles southwest of Lubbock called Tokyo, Texas, just kind of a spot in the road. You, uh, if you blink, you'll miss it. But uh, I grew up out there, and you know, I I grew up listening to kind of old Western music that uh, that my dad liked to play. Things like Tex Ritter and Sons of the Pioneers and Marty Robbins, and I loved that stuff ever since I was a kid. And I had a love really for all things to do with the cowboy life and the cowboy culture. And when I was about 14, I, I discovered this new renaissance that was going on with uh, the Elko Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And I, uh, I heard a, a poet named Waddy Mitchell and a singer named Don Edwards and some other people, but those two in particular uh, really got my attention. And I just became a big fan, and I started teaching myself to play the guitar just because I wanted to play the songs and started reciting poems. Uh, just for the fun of it, you know, for friends and things, and, and one thing led to another, and oh, 20-something years later, here I am. <laughs> well, time kind of flies, so tell us a little bit about you growing up. You didn't grow up a cowboy. No, I didn't. Uh, you know, I grew up in the country, and uh, my dad, but before I was born, my dad was a bull rider. He uh, rode bulls in college rodeos. But by the time I came along, he had kind of shifted gears and had become a primitive Baptist pastor. And he was pastoring uh, mostly small churches uh, in those days. Well, I guess they were all small churches and uh, and making his living in that way. And he had found this place for us to live out there at Tokyo, which was a little rent house where we could live uh, for free. And we paid rent by looking after a few head of cattle that the fellow who owned the place uh, ran out there on a few Bermuda grass pastures. And we always had a couple of horses growing up. And, you know, so I kind of grew up around that kind of thing, but it, it wasn't a ranch by any means. And I've never made my living as a cowboy. Um, but I've just, I've just always had a love for it. And, you know, at this point, I, I've really spent my life collecting and studying and listening to the the music and the poetry that has come out of the the working cowboy west and uh i just really love it and, and love sharing it with people well andy how did you get involved in in these old uh traditional type songs and poetry where, where was the interest there because there's a lot of more contemporary cowboy music that's out there, but you kind of focus on the the real traditional stuff. 
Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, you know, for some reason, I've always been drawn to those older songs and older poems. Uh, but, but one thing I, I can kind of point back to, whenever I first started performing, I, was, uh, I wasn't playing music. I was reciting poems, and I was also writing a few of my own poems back then, and they were uh, really terrible uh, <laughs> as you might expect from a 14 year old, but I, I had kind of been told by some people that that's what I needed to do. And, you know, someone had said, Oh, if you, you know, if you're going to be a cowboy poet, you have to, you know, write your own poetry. And, you know, I was trying to find my way and I had a show. It was one of the first shows I ever had. It was with a Texas poet and cowboy uh, named JB Allen and JB's no longer with us now. And uh, JB was kind of a kind of an intimidating character to a lot of people, but I was so naive at the time I didn't uh, even pick up on that myself. And uh, <laughs> after my performance, I just walked up to JB and said, "JB, what did you think of my poems that I'd written?" And JB said, "Well, what you need to do is read the old classic poems." the poems by S. Omar Barker and Bruce Giscadden and Charles Badger Clark and get to, you know, memorize those and recite those and get to where you know those inside and out. And once you've done that, you'll know if the poetry you're writing is any good or not because you'll have uh, the classics to compare it to. And I was already interested in those old poems, but that conversation really set me on a path of uh, seeking them out and uh, trying to find those old books, and uh, and along with that, I got real interested in in the old time songs, uh, the old time cowboy songs, especially. And uh, you know, it's kind of hard to say why those are so appealing to me, but there's a certain quality those old songs, you know, especially the ones that we don't even know who wrote them. That they're these traditional songs that have been passed down from one generation to another. Some of them dating back hundreds of years, old. English and Scottish and Irish songs that found their way out west, and the the words would be slightly changed to to make them into cowboy songs, and then they would be passed around from one singer to another, and then we still have them today. And when a song has been passed down for that many years, it just gets this certain quality that a brand new song doesn't have because there's been so many uh, people who've put their touch on it and who've refined the words and refined the melody. And, uh, you know, these old songs that are still with us were the best of the best, the, the ones that people thought were worth singing and worth passing down. And uh, I just love them. I think they're beautiful, and I, I love uh, love playing them and singing them and uh, love sharing them with people. Well, this first song that we're going to get to today is one that's called Diamond Joe. And where did you find this, and why did you select this one for your, for your Cowboy Songster CD? Well, that's kind of an interesting song. You know, there's a there's a number of old traditional cowboy songs called Diamond Joe, and they're they're basically different versions of the same song. And uh, this particular one that I kind of drew from was a a song that I learned from recordings by Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Cisco Houston, two of my favorite singers, and Ramblin' Jack, uh, a good friend and hero to me. 
and I was playing kind of Ramblin' Jack's version of Diamond Joe for a few years, and then I discovered that there was an old blues song also called Diamond Joe, and also several versions of it. Sometimes it would be played by you know an old-time string band or uh, sometimes sung a cappella. There's a great recording of a fellow named Charlie Butler uh, that Alan and John Lomax made at a a uh, state penitentiary back in the 30s singing Diamond Joe. And it just occurred to me that you know these songs, even though the, the kind of blues version wasn't a cowboy song, they seem to be related in subject matter in some way, and I'm real interested in those connections between old cowboy songs and old folk songs and blues songs, and you know it, all that stuff kind of comes from the same place. And so I uh, I had the idea to put those songs together. So in this version that you hear, the uh, the kind of the chorus that says "Diamond Joe, come and get me," that comes from that old blues song, and then the verses that tell the story. Uh, come from the old-time cowboy song. and uh, So that's just kind of my own arrangement and just an example of how some of those songs and ideas, you know, float around out there in the, out there in the folk world. Well, let's take a listen to your version of Diamond Joe, and we're going to come back and talk more with Andy on the Campfire Cafe, heard around the world online at equestrianlegacy.net. Mm-hmm. Come get me, Diamond Joe. Well, there is a man you'll hear about most anywhere you go. And his holdings are in Texas, and his name is Diamond Joe. And he carries all his money in a diamond studded jaw. And he never was much bothered by the process of the law. I ain't gonna work out in the country, ain't gonna work on the triple C. Diamond Joe, you better come get me, Diamond Joe. Well, I hired the Diamond Joe boys, and I Give me a string of horses They're so old they couldn't stand And I nearly starved the death, boys Cause he did mistreat me so And I never saved a dollar From the pay of Diamond Joe Gonna buy me a piece of meat And cook a slice every week Diamond Joe, you better come get me, Diamond Joe. Well, his bread, it was corn dodgers, and his meat I couldn't chaw. And he drove me nearly crazy with the wagon of his jaw. 
Hear the telling of his stories Boys, I aim to let you know There never was a rounder Who could lie like Diamond Joe Gonna buy me a sack of flour Bake a whole cake every hour Diamond Joe, you better come get me Diamond Joe tried three times to quit him boys but he did argue so I'm still punching cattle in the pay of Diamond Joe when I'm called up yonder and it comes my time to go give my blankets to my buddies and give the fleas to Diamond Joe Gonna buy me a roll of bed and have a place to lay my head. Diamond Joe, you better come get me, Diamond Joe. Diamond Joe, come and get me, my wife is trying to whip me. Diamond Joe, you better come get me, Diamond Joe. Diamond Joe by Andy Hedges, and that is from his CD, Cowboy Songster. And um, tell us what a songster is, Andy. Well, a songster is kind of an old-time term that's not used much anymore. And uh, that was used for these guys who uh, would usually be solo performers who would back themselves up on maybe a guitar or a banjo. And... uh, It'd be someone who wasn't known necessarily for writing their own songs, but for playing uh, a wide variety of styles and who would have a, a deep repertoire of all kinds of songs, traditional songs, the popular songs of the day, and uh, whatever it may be that they were interested in performing. And it, it kind of carries the idea of someone who wasn't, you know, maybe easy to uh put in a box you know it might not be someone who is necessarily a blues singer but they might have played some blues songs but they might have also sung some ballads and uh, they might have also uh played some dance music and you know just whatever they felt like they were kind of people who were kind of like the jukebox of their day that they could play (laughs) uh, whatever song needed to be sung for the occasion and i'm I've been real inspired by that idea, and I guess try to emulate that in in my music. And so I came up with the idea of a cowboy songster, and decided to name my record after that. Well, it's a great title for for both Cowboy Songster and then Cowboy Songster Volume Two. And we're going to play some some uh, some of the music from both of those today. But uh, tell me who your influences have been as far as uh, as your music and your poetry? Well, there's so many of them, but, uh, you know, a couple of guys who come to mind right now that are two of my great heroes and influences and uh, 
I'm really blessed to say also uh, good friends of mine uh, would be Don Edwards and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. And that's uh, just two men who can get on stage and with just uh, just their voice and a guitar and a bag of songs and can entertain an audience and uh, don't need a band, don't need anything else uh, dressing up the music other than what they can do themselves. And uh, two men also who have a, a great knowledge and understanding of traditional music and where all this came from. And so they've both been a, a, a great influence on me and on my music. And I'm actually uh, really looking forward to playing a show with them next week. I'm going to be in Elko, Nevada at the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering and on uh, Thursday night, a week from today, I'll be playing a concert with uh, Don Edwards and Ramblin' Jack, and so that's going to be a big thrill for me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I love Don Edwards to death, and uh, and later on in the second segment of the show, we're going we're gonna to be doing some music uh, from Don's Just Me and My Guitar, and, and yeah, you don't yeah, have a lot of instrumentation. Yeah, you don't have a lot of instrumentation on this. This is all you. Uh, playing yep. various instruments on here, so it's it's really cool. It is really cool. Well, your latest CD that has just been released is uh, Cowboy Recitations, and we're going to do one right now from that CD called Bad Job. Anything you want to tell us about this one? Yeah, Bad Job uh, is a poem that was written by my friend Buck Ramsey, and Buck is no longer with us, but uh, Buck was uh, a really important person in the world of cowboy music and poetry. Uh, my friend Andy Wilkinson has said that Buck was the spiritual leader of the cowboy poetry movement, and I think that's a great description. And uh, if there's anyone out there who's not familiar with uh, Buck Ramsey's writing, I would strongly encourage them to check out a book of his called Grass, and it's just a phenomenal piece of writing, one of the most important works to ever come out of the cowboy culture. But this poem, Bad Job, is uh, something a little less serious, but a great story that uh, that Buck put into a poem, and I was happy to include on this new record. Well, this is a great one. It's called Bad Job. It's from the CD Cowboy Recitations, and we'll be back and talk more with Andy in just a moment on the Campfire Cafe. If you see me sitting sorrowful, all busted and stove up, and you wonder how a puncher gets that way, I'll tell you from the start off to avoid all work ground if you rope and ride horseback for your pay. It's all right to shoe your horses and to braid and mend your tack, all that work of ground that keeps you in the saddle. But your mind gets misdirected if you try your hand at chores beneath stomping out the Bronx and punching cattle. Now and then, old Major Domo, he'd come rouse me during slack and suggest I patch his roof or plow his garden or do some post-hole digging or go scale some tall windmills. But I'd always tell him, please, I beg your pardon. But it so happened that one Sunday I was early in from town a-holding down the bunkhouse all alone when the boss, he done convinces me if I'd pull one chore, tacking hack hooves next day would be quicker done. He said all them shoes are in a whiskey barrel up in the barn hayloft, standing right beside that hayloft pulley door. And though it took us five to hoist them up, I figures coming down, 
All that gravity's worth them four men more. Well, I was nowhere near a horse, so it made good sense to me, so I go don my shaps and spurs and gets my rope, then ambles to the barn up the ladder to the loft, thinking I can get this job done in a lope. So I straps a big old jug knot tie around that whiskey barrel, runs the rope out through the pulley to the ground, then I delicately balances that barrel on the edge, and I rushes out to gently let her down. I runs the rope around my tail and takes a hitch in front to control the downward progress of the barrel. Then I give the jerk that tilts the barrel out of the barn hayloft door. And that's the insult that begins our little quarrel. You see, that barrel of horseshoes had to weigh a good 400 pounds. More than twice what I would weigh all wet and dressed, so when I tell you that my rope hitch hitched and slipped up underarm... And I figures you can guess most of the rest. I plumb parts with earth quite suddenly, a blasting for the sky, but I meets that barrel about halfway up that barn. And this wreck, it slows my progress some, but it ain't slowed for long, for I'm heading for that pulley and yard arm. And when that barrel hits the bottom and my poor head hits the top and rings that pulley like a midway gong, where the fellers swing the hammers for to show off with the girls, You might think it's over, but you're wrong. See, the crashing of that stave barrel all weighed down with them shoes caused the bottom to bust out and dump its load. So I'm plummeting from heaven now about the speed of sound, and I'm heading on a dangerous dead-end road. But that devil barrel, it slaps me blind and sideways one more time as it flies up and I'm a-crashing down. Then you'd think this stubborn accident would be about played out when I breaks a few more bones upon the ground. No. The rope goes slack. The hitch unhitches. I lie gazing up. Then I close my eyes and gives me up for dead. Cause the last thing I see before I wakes all splinted up is that cussed barrel a coming for my head. <sighs> Oh, that is just not a pretty picture. We've all had days like that, haven't we? I'm afraid we have. I'm afraid we have. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Andy, have you ever gotten out on any, uh, they still do cattle drives. I mean, have you ever gotten out on any of these cattle drives with these guys and and, uh, gathered around the campfire? Well, I I haven't ever ridden on any of those uh, what you might call a cattle drive. You know, when I was a kid, I, I before I got real into the music and poetry, I really thought all I wanted to do was be a working cowboy. And my dad arranged for me to go work a, a few roundups at a ranch east of Lubbock where we uh, were friends with the foreman of that ranch. And so I got to kind of experience the real deal in those days. And, you know, I slept in the bunkhouse with the cowboys and I rode out in the morning and uh, helped them gather cattle. Of course, I had no idea what I was doing and was probably in the way most of the time. Uh, (laughs) But they were real gracious with me and I loved every minute of it. And uh, and there's a big part of me that still wishes uh, I could spend more of my time in that way. But I fell in love with... uh, with the music and uh, the performing, and, and that just sort of 
took over, and that's the uh, the path I chose to take. And and I sure don't have any regrets about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were you were talking about Waddy Mitchell earlier in the show, and of course Waddy was uh, was a real deal cowboy. I mean, he spent his time out uh, uh, herding cattle and and working horses. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, do you talk to some of these? fellas about what it was like for them and and even folks that are still doing that what it was like and and uh what they did for their entertainment because they you know you didn't see too many of these guys with guitars strapped to their back when they are doing these things what was what was most of their conversation and and entertainment at night well that's that's exactly right especially when you're talking about the really old days you know uh in the uh, the uh, you know the trail driving era and the the time that I'm especially interested in you know the music that came from that time uh, most of those fellas weren't playing guitars you know they might have had a a fiddle or a banjo and more likely than that a harmonica but mostly what you would have heard and seen and this is what you read in the various accounts from the the guys who were collecting those songs is that they were uh, singing these a cappella and and there was kind of a fine line between reciting and singing because they would you know they might sing a poem a cappella or the next fella might recite the words to a song because he couldn't sing and one thing we do know uh, from reading about those guys back then is that most of the actual cowboys weren't particularly good singers you know they didn't have great voices and a lot of them uh, didn't even know a complete song. You know, they would sometimes just sing a fragment of a song. And uh, I don't know where you're going with that, but it, it brings to mind an interesting point, and that is that it wasn't cowboys that saved these songs and kept them alive. It was the song collectors and the folklorists and the professional singers. It was people like... Uh, Jack Thorpe. Now, Jack Thorpe himself was a cowboy, but was also a musician, and he uh, quit his job and began collecting cowboy songs, but also the work of people like uh, John Lomax and Alan Lomax. And uh, so that's another thing that has inspired me, and I've tried to kind of follow in in those guys' footsteps as someone who's uh, not a full-time participant in the cowboy life and kind of an outsider in some ways that uh there's an important role to fill and that is you know saving and collecting these songs and uh keeping them in front of today's audiences and uh you know preserving that that history and all these great stories that uh, that I think are really important for us to remember yeah yeah I think where I was going with with that question was a lot of it was they were they were sitting around the campfire and and telling tales or or poetry um yeah you know versus versus singing around the campfire with the guitar you know it was yeah well that's exactly did. right they were they were reciting poems and they were singing a cappella and they were telling stories and which is really what all humans have always done you know it's just a natural way to uh to entertain ourselves and uh, relieve the boredom a bit, especially back in the days before radio and television and the internet and you know all of the things we're distracted with these days. Yeah, 
Yeah. And then a lot of the poems were turned into songs a little bit later on. And so, um, uh, yeah, that's right. So many, so many people have taken, uh, Whitey's poetry and, and turn those into songs as well. So, uh, just, just kind of interesting. It's not always what we saw on TV, you know, um, Definitely. Sometimes you didn't have the sons of the pioneers riding along in the wagon with all of their instruments necessarily when you're traveling down the road. So yep. <laughs> a little That's different. True. That's true. We were talking yeah, and the, and the guitar, uh, even even just the guitar, you know, is somewhat an invention of Hollywood as far as the idea of the you know the singing cowboy playing the guitar like we all do. Not that there weren't some guitars around in those days, and there may have been some cowboys who played, but. Uh, they sure weren't uh, playing one horseback. Right, right, right. Well, when I listened to your CDs, and, and you were kind enough to send me some of those the other day, and it's so much fun. One of the one of the pluses for me is to be able to get to listen to music and poetry and decide what we can can put on the air, and we can't get everything on there. So that's why people have to go to your website and CD Baby in these different places to order their own copies. But um, uh, sometimes it's hard to tell whether, whether you know, we're listening to folk music or whether we're listening to the blues or what we're listening to exactly as far as the type of music. But this one is really one that has a blues feel to it, and it's called West Texas Blues. Anything you want to tell us about this one? Yeah, well, I'll tell you where I learned that one. I I think I mentioned this to you when we were visiting on the phone the other day, but I'm a a big fan of Bob Dylan, and he's been a big influence on me. I, I just uh, love his songwriting. I love his singing. Yes, I did say that. I love his singing. He's one of the most uh, expressive singers of all time, in my opinion, and just a, an incredible artist. But uh, there's a old kind of bootleg recording of Dylan playing at the Gaslight Cafe in Greenwich Village in, I believe, in 1962. And on that recording, he sings West Texas Blues. And uh, and that's that's really where I learned the song. And as near as I can tell, it's a, it's a traditional song. It's not one that Dylan had written. And at that time, he was playing mostly traditional songs. But I don't know what his source was. I don't know where he learned it, and I haven't really found any other versions of it out there. And so I kind of worked up my own version, and I threw in a few uh, additional verses, some kind of, you know, in, in folk music, there's some of these kind of floating verses that you see in all kinds of songs, you know, things like Jack of Diamonds, Jack of Diamonds, you know, that phrase might show up in right. a cowboy song or in a blues song and so i kind of in that same spirit i threw in some additional verses and uh yeah and started playing and of course you know being from west texas i love the <laughs> love the idea all right well let's take a listen to west texas blues and come back and talk more with andy in just a moment on the campfire cafe
down to West Texas Across the Louisiana line I'm going down to West Texas Across the Louisiana line I get a fortune telling woman One who can really read my mind Well if you ever go to Dallas We'll take the right hand road Well if you ever go to Dallas We'll take the right hand road Cause Western Dallas streets, boys, they're gonna kill you for sure. I'm going down to Jagrabbits, across that West Texas line. I'm going down to Jagrabbits, across that West Texas line. The stars up above Gonna be my leaving sign Where my horses ain't hungry And they won't eat your hay Where my horses ain't hungry down here beside me for as long as you'll stay Will you never miss your water till your well runs dry Will you never miss your water till your well runs dry Never miss your man till he says goodbye. We can ride and tell my mama that I won't be home tonight. Well, you can ride and tell my mama that I won't be home tonight. I'm going down the road, boys I gotta do it right I'm going down to West Texas Across the Louisiana line I'm going down to West Texas Across the Louisiana line Telling woman, one who can really read my mind.
West Texas Blues, Andy Hedges. And uh, Andy, that's a great song. You did a great job on that. You do sound a little better than Dylan, I think. So, <laughs> Well, thanks, Gary. Mm -mm. You know, not all of the music and the poetry was pretty. Uh, you know, they told a story. And, uh, and sometimes those stories uh, were kind of tough. Uh, I want to get to one now that is um, uh, another great song from um, your CD, Cowboy Songster. And this is from Volume 2. Uh, it's one called Button Willow Tree. What can you tell us about this one? You know, that's kind of a mysterious old song. And I learned that one off a record of Glenn Orland, the great, great old-time cowboy singer and uh you, that's another one you, you, i haven't found a lot of other versions of it or any other versions of it or any other information necessarily but you can tell from listening to it that it uh is kind of a cowboy song but probably came from an old uh, sea shanty of some kind and even kind of retains some of that uh quality to it and uh it really sounds just like a, a cowboy version of an old sailor song. And uh, it is kind of dark and kind of mysterious, but I uh, always loved it when I heard Glenn sing it and wanted to do my own version of it. All right, well, let's take a listen to Button Willow Tree, take a listen to the lyrics and what he's got to say in this. We'll be right back.
And remember the night that when with me you went to bed. If it's a girl, then bounce her on your knee and tell her of her daddy who is far across the sea. If it's a boy, call him Willie Lee. When he's 21, you can send him more to me with his boots and his chaps and his gallop saddle new. I'll make him punch cattle like his daddy used to do. It's home to your home, wherever you may be. It's home to your home, to your own country, where the oak and the ash and the button willow tree. The lark sings gaily in his own country. tree and uh, and Andy some of those stories are just you know they're not pretty pictures you know life was kind of rough for these guys wasn't it well yeah it was and you know I I, I feel like that's uh, just reflective of uh, the human experience and all of our lives um, and certainly you don't want to always focus on the dark side of things but uh, I love stories and I love stories that are you know are real and raw and honest and, and tell the truth and that's a great thing about these old folk songs as opposed to the more commercial hollywood uh cowboy songs that uh focus a bit more on the romance and and the myth of the cowboy life uh these old traditional songs i think give you a, more of a picture of what uh, life may have been back at uh, or what life may have been like at whatever time that the song was written <clears throat> so i enjoy those stories yeah yeah well you have uh, uh we're going to do one now that's kind of a little bit of uh, the different side of the coin and and your latest cd has just been released uh called cowboy recitations and um great cd uh before we get to this poem let's go ahead and tell people how they can find your music and your poetry well, you can uh, buy any of those CDs on my website, which is andyhedges.com. And uh, most of my music and poetry is also available to download on iTunes. Now, this brand new one it hadn't made it there yet, but it, it will be there soon. And so uh, that's, that's the easiest way to get everything uh, digitally is just on the iTunes store. Okay. All right. And, and cowboy recitations is so fresh and so new. It burned my fingers when I took it out of the envelope, when I got it. So it's, it was hot off well, the presses. I, I pretty well put it in an envelope to you as soon as I got it in the mail. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hot, off the uh, press. hot off the press. But, uh, this one is called the married man. It's from the cowboy recitations. Anything you want to share with us about this one real quick? The Married Man was written by Charles Badger Clark, one of the great old-time classic poets. And I first heard my friend and the wonderful horseman 
Randy Riemann recite The Married Man. And it's just a poem I've loved for a long time. I started reciting The Married Man back when I was single. And the the poem has has brought it's it has more meaning to me uh the further I go in my life as I've gotten married and I now have three children uh there's things I appreciate even more about it than when I first started reciting it and so it's just a it's a great piece of writing and I hope folks enjoy it as much as I do all right this is the married man it is from the brand new cd cowboy recitations and we'll be back in just a moment there's an old part of mine that sits by his door watches the evening skies he sat there a thousand evenings before and i reckon he will till he dies poor feller i reckon he will till he dies and hear through the dim quiet air far cattle that call crickets that cheep his wife is singing their baby to sleep in the creak of her rockabye chair once we used to camp where the last light would fail and the east wasn't white till we'd start but now he's deaf to the call of the trail and the song of the restless heart. Poor feller, the song of the restless heart that you hear in the wind from the dawn. He's left it with all the good free-footed things for a slow little song that a tired woman sings and a smoke when his dry day is gone. Well, I've rode in and told him of lands that were strange where I drifted from glory to dread. And he'd tell me the news of his little old range and the cute things his kid had said. Poor feller, the cute things his kid had said and the way six-year Billy could ride. And the dark would creep in from the gray chaparral and the woman would hum while I pitied my pal. Because I thought of him like he had died. Well, he rides in old circles. He looks at old sights. His life is as flat as a pond. He loves that old skyline he watches at night, but he don't seem to care for beyond. Poor feller, he don't seem to dream of beyond nor the room he could find there for joy. Ain't you ever uneasy, says I one day. But he just smiled at me in a pitying way while he braided a quirt for his boy. He preaches that I ought to fold up my wings that even wild geese find a nest that women and a woman different things and a saddle nap isn't a rest poor feller he's more for the shade and the rest and he's less for the wind and the fight yet out in strange hills when the blue shadows rise and i'm tired from the wind and the sun in my eyes i wonder sometimes if he's right Oh, I've courted the wind and I've followed her free from the snows that the low stars have kissed to the heave and the dip of the wavy old sea. Yet maybe there's something I've missed. Poor feller. Yes, maybe there's something I've missed and maybe it's more than I've won. Just a door that's my own from the cool shadows creep. My wife singing our baby to sleep. When I'm tired from the wind and the sun. Oh, that's great, Andy. That is absolutely great. That's the married man from Cowboy Recitations by Andy Hedges. And um, our time is just flying by. 
so much more that we could have listened to and, and, and more that we could have talked about, but there are a couple of things that I want to get to before you have to leave us. And um, one of the things that you are doing right now that's pretty exciting is uh, you have Cowboy Crossroads podcast with Andy Hedges that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about that one, about that real quick. Yeah, I just launched this uh, podcast and kind of like your own show here, Gary, I, I interview a, a different guest on uh, each episode and I'm really just trying to capture people telling stories. And so the first two episodes I just released this month are with my friend and cowboy poet Waddy Mitchell. And I've got a, a lot of exciting uh, guests lined up and I'll be releasing about one a month uh, in the coming months. And uh, that's something also folks can uh, subscribe to on iTunes. It's free to give that a listen. Or it can be found on my website and various other places on the web. And uh, I am excited to share it with folks and uh, anxious to see uh, see how the response is. Yeah. Now, what what is what's your goal with with uh, Cowboy Crossroads? Because you've done two with Waddy that are available for people to listen to now. Um, and again, I, you can find them very easily on his website, andyhedges.com. But but what's your goal with these guests that you're bringing on? Well, you know, in, in my music and my poetry, I've I've thought of myself as kind of an amateur folklorist and this is just uh, kind of another extension of that. Uh, I really like to tell stories and capture stories, and, and this is just another way to, to do it. And so I guess my goal is to capture stories from uh, these really interesting people that I get to meet in my travels, uh, cowboy poets and cowboy singers and folk singers and working cowboys and ranchers, uh, rodeo people, uh, music producers, you know, there's just all kinds of folks that uh, I have the great fortune to uh, call my friends and, and spend time with them and, and hear their stories, you know, backstage at a show or on the road somewhere. And my goal is really to capture those stories and share them with people and, and uh, with the hope that uh, folks will enjoy them as much as I as much as I do and as much as I have over the years. Well, you do a great job with your interviews, and I think it's a great way to perpetuate the legacy of uh, this great genre of cowboy music and cowboy poetry as well. And uh, so congratulations on that. And that is Cowboy Crossroads Podcast with Andy Hedges, and you can find it on his website at andyhedges.com. Um, and Andy, you're headed to Elko uh, in just a couple of weeks. And that's 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 a pretty cool deal. That is the grandfather of all these gatherings that have sprung off from that. And uh, I think you told me the other day that you'd been performing since you were 19 there, uh, which is a really yep. cool honor because you know most of this is by invitation. You have to you have to apply to be part of that deal, and and you have been for quite a while. Uh, what are the dates on the gathering this year? Well, that's actually coming up next week, and so it's uh, the the days that I will be there performing. Uh, I believe it's February second, third, uh, and the fourth. Uh, so Thursday, Friday, and Saturday next week. 
but it's almost a week-long event, so, you know, folks will be pulling into Elko, I think, uh, Monday and Tuesday, and they, there's workshops and evening shows going on all week long, and then uh, those last three days is when it really ramps up with, oh, uh, music and poetry on stages all over town, and evening shows, and jam sessions all night long, and dancing, and uh, great food, and gear shows, and just about anything that you would want to see or hear that has anything to do with working cowboy culture is going to be going on in Elko next week, and it's a really incredible experience. If uh, if you go once, you'll you'll be hooked, and you'll be coming back every year. And that that little town just fills up with people who are uh, just excited to be there and anxious to sit and listen to poetry and and music and it's a really a really fun time it's it's my favorite place to play every year so i'm i'm excited to get back out there well that's great congratulations on being out there again uh this year and um and in the true spirit of the west and the cowboy way as our friend ranger doug would say uh you're part of a of a benefit for jessica hodges you want to tell us a little bit about that and when that's taking place so folks that are listening might want to make sure they catch that yeah you bet uh that'll be thursday night of the gathering uh so uh i guess a week from today and it's a late night kind of a unofficial informal show although it's now on the on the online schedule for the gathering but after all the other shows are done at about 10 or 10:30 that night uh we're going to do a a special show and it's going to serve two purposes one is it's going to serve as a benefit for my friend uh jessica hedges uh no relation there but uh jessica's a a poet and her and her husband sam work on a ranch in nevada and jessica suffered a a, a brain injury from a horse accident uh here a few weeks back and uh so we're just doing this as a way to raise some cash to help out the Hedges family. But the other purpose the show will serve is it's going to be a tribute to Guy Clark, who passed away in May of this year. And Guy Clark was not a cowboy and was not even a cowboy singer, but he was an incredible songwriter, an incredible poet, and he had a deep influence on most of the people involved uh, in the Elko gathering, most of the musicians and most of the poets. And, uh, he was also a, a close friend of Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who's a, a longtime friend of the Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And so we, we thought it would be a nice thing and, and really fun to do an evening of Guy Clark songs. And so each performer who's involved is going to pay $20 to sing a Guy Clark song with all the proceeds going to Sam and Jessica and the show will be free to the public, uh, first come, first serve on the seats, and then we'll pass the hat around and, and hope that folks will want to donate to the cause. So it'll be a great event. So if you're going to be in Elko, check that out. Thursday night around 10.30 p.m. at the G3 Bar Theater at the Western Folklife Center. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for your generosity in doing that, and thank you 
for taking your time to be with us today and share your stories and a little bit about you and your great music and poetry and uh, and what you're doing to keep the traditions of the West alive. And you can find well, it's out. My, it's my pleasure, Gary. Thank you for thank you for having me on your show and uh, for you know playing our music and uh, promoting. Uh, our music and our way of life uh, out there to the world. We uh, we need more people like you uh, doing this kind of thing. Well, I appreciate it, Andy. And you can find out everything you want to know about Andy Hedges and get his great music at andyhedges.com. And um, Andy, we're going to close out this segment with uh, another of your songs called the Brazos River Song. Anything you'd like to tell us about this real quick? Well, the you know we we talked about Buck Ramsey earlier, and this is a song I learned from Buck, and I I, I can't sing it or or hear it without thinking of Buck Ramsey. But it's just a great old Texas folk song talking about all the all the rivers in Texas. So yeah, it's a it's an old favorite, the Brazos River song. All right, well, this is a great one from Andy Hedges, and uh, again, thanks, Andy, and we'll see you down the trail, my friend. Adios. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate it. We crossed the wide Pecos, forded the Nueces. We swam the Guadalupe and we walked down the Brazos. Red River run rusty and the widgets all clear But down by the Brazos I courted my dear Singing Lila, Lila, Lily, give me your hand Lila, Lila, Lily, give me your hand Lila, Lila, Lily, give me your hand For there's many Colorado runs weaving and winding The slow San Antonio courses the plain But I never will ride by the Brazos again Singing la 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 lily, give me your hand la la la
I'd ride along For my Brazos River sweetheart has left me and time for Saddle Up America on Equestrian Legacy Radio. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with the chairman of the Bureau of Land Management's National Wild Horse and Bureau Advisory Board, Fred Wall. We do want to thank our sponsors, and those are the sponsors you'll find in the general store, where you'll find everything for the horse lover and folks that just love the Western and equestrian lifestyle, and our Legacy Select Horse Campgrounds and Guest Ranches, where you'll find the finest riding destinations in North America. And all of those are found on our website at equestrianlegacy.net. Now warm up that cup of coffee and reposition yourself for the saddle. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Fred Wall on Saddle Up America. cowboy out on the stormy plain when I was a cowboy out on the stormy plain the only hell that I ever raised he's a pulling on my bridle rein out on the cow trail the dusty billows rise out on the cow trail, the dusty billows rise. We're 50 miles from water, the grass is scorched and dry. Komataya, yuki komataya, yukiaye. Well, I've been where the lightning tangled in my eyes. I've been where the lightning tangled in my eyes. I heard the trail boss holler, hope you ain't afraid to die. Komataya, yuki komataya, yuki yae.
there's a cold rain a falling, chilled down to the bone. There's a cold rain a falling, chilled down to the bone. The devil rode the nightmare, you ought to hear him moan. Comatia, yuppie, comatia, yuppie, It's well I work for wages, boys, to get my pay and go. It's well I work for wages, boys, I get my pay and go. I'm bound to follow the longhorn cows until I am too old. Comatia, yuppie, comatia, yuppie, so come all you cowboys, don't you want to go? Come all you cowboys and don't you want to go? Just whooping up the cattle out in the heat and cold. Comatia, yippee, comatia, yippee, That's Don Edwards, When I Was a Cowboy, and our next guest, Fred Wool. I don't even know where to begin to start talking about Fred. He has he wears so many different hats. Uh, he has been a horse clinician for over 30 years. He is an advocate for the wild horses. He is an entertainer in Branson at Silver Dollar City with uh, demonstrating the versatility of the wild horse at the salute to the great American cowboy. He has uh, done service for our country in Iraq and uh, in Jordan, and we're going to get to all of those different things. And then he then he finds time to teach uh, at North Arkansas College in uh, Harrison. So, Fred, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Gary. It's an honor to to to, to be here this afternoon. I'm uh, I'm kind of in- excited about this. This is pretty cool for an old boy from the hills of Arkansas to be on your radio show. Oh well, you've done so much stuff. I know this isn't this isn't much, but we're sure thrilled to have you. And um, to get started, Fred, tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got uh, how you got involved with the wild horses. Let's kind of go in that direction first. All right, all right, Gary. You know, it's, I've been involved with horses my entire life. Matter of fact, uh, I was kind of raised with them here in the hills, but we use mules in the, the logwood, and uh, that's that was my first first start is having mules dragging out logs. And uh, like everybody else, I grew up with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and them, and so I started in uh, playing with horses and doing them the same way as I, we did them old mules, making horses do things instead of asking them to do things. And I like everybody that trains horses ever, ever started, you know, I started in hanging out my shingle that I'll train your horse. So I started, or breaking horses, let me put it that way. And after right. a little bit, I started in dealing with these wild horses, and uh, I got to where I could get along with them pretty well, but these were horses after everybody else had had a chance with them. So about oh, 14 years ago, I decided I was going to get one that nobody had ever touched. So that's when I got my horse, Blue. And uh, 
it's been a ride ever since then. I learned a lot from him, and I've, I've applied it to all the other horses and uh, I've worked with, and I've worked with well over 500 horses, honestly, in the, in the, the last 15 years. And uh, uh, these Mustangs make great horses. And you have to understand they're not like a regular horse, but uh, they're, they're a horse in the, truce, in, in the true sense. And so uh, uh, it's really been fun. Well, what what generated your interest to begin with 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 wild horses? Was this a was this a client that came to you with a horse they couldn't do anything with, or how did that interest start for you? Well, yeah, uh, you know, I, you know, they they brought me a horse that everybody else had played with and they couldn't do anything with him, and so I got him and I started in working with him and I learned from him and he learned from me and uh, you know I think a horse is like a chalkboard you know you can write things on a chalkboard and then you can erase it but you always have a ghost of that left on there and i think a horse is the same way and so uh he had a bunch of stuff written on his on his chalkboard that uh i had placed there and i did pretty good job of getting some of that off but it was still still there so that's when i just decided I was going to get one that nobody else had touched and that was my that was my my, my start right there and they are so versatile so just uh, 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 you know for the kind of things I do they're just perfect for me I mean I have kids over here all the time they're always playing with the horses blue has got more fans than the, than I've got in the 10 years we've been doing our little thing up at and uh, Branson uh, we have a about 300,000 a year come through up there at Silver Dollar City when we're doing our shows. And so uh, oh, he's wow. got way more fans than I got. There are people come there, they don't even care if I'm there or not. They just ask, is Blue here? Is Blue here? And so uh, <laughs> uh, he just uh, he just a really neat horse. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, now tell us, Fred, what the salute to the Great American Cowboy Festival is. Well, this year it's uh, uh, it's it's well, Silver Dollar City is one of the most family-oriented parks in the whole world. There, they've been in the top ten for families for forever. I can't remember when they won. And 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 what we're doing up there is we have crafts, old-timey crafts like uh, saddle makers. Uh, Don Dane is there. Dennis Connor is there. Uh, Dennis is a great sculptor. And we also have that truck wagon cook Kent Rollins. And yeah. this year, the the emphasis is going to be on food. So uh, uh, Kent's going to be there doing that. But it's a uh, um, you know it's it's just one of those things to where it's a, it's a unique park. It's family oriented, and it's a, a really neat place to be. And uh, I get to, to share. We we have a Wild West show, typical of the the old days when we used to have these shows go, go, go around like Buffalo Bills, and it's uh, really neat, and it's all family-oriented. I mean, and it's really, really neat. Well, that's pretty cool. Now, that takes place, what, in September and October there at Silver Dollar City? Right. It, right. It starts the, the middle of September and goes through the end of October. Okay. Well, that Seven sounds weeks. like a place... Sounds like a place to be in September and October, and uh, any time that you talk about food or horses, I'm there. So I may have to make a pilgrimage out to Branson this fall. 
But uh, well, that would be good. Uh, uh, Belinda Gale will be there the first week in October. So Gary, that'd be a good time to come. She is such a sweetheart and a great singer, and uh, it'd be a good time to come when 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 she's there. Well, I'd love to do that. Anytime I can spend time with Belinda, I enjoy doing that as well. But uh, I want to I want to back up just a little bit. This this was really interesting to me. And you spent time uh, in Iraq from yes, sir. Uh, October of '08 to November of '09 as a uh, uh, senior agriculture advisor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture over there. Um, what was that about? Well, you know, one of the things that we learned over there was that, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like that old, old, old saying, you can feed a person once, but if you teach them how to grow and cook their food, you can feed them forever. And so mm-hmm. part of the thing was is trying to bring the agricultural sector there into the 20th century. They were doing a lot of things the way that we used to do them here in the, the 50s and 60s. And so uh, the State Department the determined that, you know, maybe helping these people do better for themselves would help an awful lot in uh, 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 keeping these radical groups in check because, it, it, you know, it's one of those deals. And, and, and it really it, it helped a lot. It helped an awful lot. Well, you know, that's that's something that we just didn't see or hear about in the news. I mean, you know, we, we've always had the coverage of the fighting and, and uh, what our service people were overdoing there, but, but nothing about uh, the instruction to help the folks out in Iraq. And that had to be a little bit of a dangerous spot to be in during that period of time. Well, you know, I went on about 200 missions and I uh, was blown up once or twice, got got shot at a lot. But, you know, it, it, it's one of those things to where the benefits really outweighed the, the risk. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, accomplishments that we made, the people that we helped, I still, I still, still stay in touch with those folks over there. And uh, uh, it's really, uh, it's really, uh, it was a really uh, a unique oppor- opportunity for us as Americans to really help out. And uh, Mosul was, was where I was at in the northern part, where all the fighting is going on r- right now. And uh, uh, it really hurts me to know I have friends there that are in danger. Uh, and it's a... Uh, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you just have to man up over. But uh, And a lot of the troops that was with me are back over there because they know the area, they know the people, and they're, they're doing a good job. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your service and what you did during that period of time over there. And, again, it's a shame that uh, there wasn't news coverage to, to talk about that type of a program that was being put in place. Um, but after you finished there, you were in, in Jordan and uh, working with them on their horse program there. Talk to us a little bit about that. <laughs> that was a, that was a really a, a big hoot too. You know, uh, one thing that we used in Iraq when we were there was the State Department and the general staff 
used me to kind of open doors uh, because in, in, in the Arab culture, horses are a big, uh, big part of that, that, that world. And uh, they, they would call up someone, uh, uh, somebody important in the government of that and say, hey, we got this old cowboy from the hills of Arkansas that wants to come look at your, at your horses. So I'd have to go with them, or I wanted to go with them, or I did go with them, and I'd have to prove to them that I knew a little bit about horses. I mean, they'd give me a, bring me a horse out that was kind of crazy and all this, and I'd have to work with it, and then, you know, and that's that's how he did. Well, the State Department got contacted about Petra, the lost city of Petra. There was a lot of complaints going on there about the care of care of horses, and so the word got out they wanted someone to go there that understood the Arab culture and understood horses and apparently I was pretty close to the top because they asked me and I spent two years there actually living in Petra and uh, oh, the wow. only native, native English speaker there and uh, that was really a unique opp- opportunity for me to really get to know the, the Arab culture and know the true, true people uh, over there, and it, uh, you know, it's one of those things that for an old boy from the hills of Arkansas, it was pretty cool. <laughs> well, did did you did you bring some new training uh, techniques to uh, to the Arab culture and the way that they they had worked with their horses, or, or, or what was being accomplished there? Well, I care of the horses more than any anything any, anything else. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, uh, and breaking horses, they actually broke horses. And and I, you know, to me, there's a big difference between training a horse and breaking a horse. Uh, and so they would actually break horses to pull buggies and to give people rides and all this. And uh, uh, I worked with, you know, it's one of them things to where, and I was very careful never to say, well, that ain't how we do it back home. I took time and I made a big big effort to learn how they were doing things to try to improve on the way they were doing it. I didn't want them to do it my way or the way we did it back home. I wanted to help them improve their way of doing it. And that was uh, one of the, the keys to my success in Iraq and in Jordan was that I never said you have to do this the way we do back home. I tried right. to help them improve the way they were doing things. And they were, I mean, when you think about it, Gary, over there every morning in Petra, we'd have about 300 horses come in to take the people through the park. About 280 of them, 300, were Arab stallions. The oh, other wow. 20 or so were, were, were mares. And so there wasn't any fussing or fighting or anything like that. And this really improved my opinion of Arab horses. Because and you know it, it was uh, the Arab culture does not believe in gilding, and so that's what we would have there: 280 stallions. And uh, uh, to me, that was a learning ex- experience for me. That was my aha moment because here when we have a stallion we put them in the pen by themselves we keep them away from all the other horses because he's a stallion and right, and the only right. time he sees another horse is when it's time for him to do what he's su- supposed to do and right. honestly gary if you keep, you kept me in the pen and the only time i got out of that pen is when i seen a good-looking woman i'd be kind of wild too <laughs> 
I can. I understand that. I understand that, Fred. Oh gosh. Well, uh, so, I did, um, did. Did they? Did they? Uh, surely they didn't keep all those stallions stalled. I mean, were they out in in uh, in pens or uh, uh, pastures together, or how did how did that work? Well, in the mornings when they'd come in, it would be just like a uh, a trail ride situation. They, they would be in a long line, and uh, people that would want a horse to take them into the park, they'd just key up there, or I think the word is queue up. I think that's the, the word that they use, and they just, they just bring them one red end behind each other and put, put people on them. And then at home, they actually kept them in their, their front yard. Wow. I mean, wow. It, 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 you know, uh, it was... The, 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 the Arab culture is a horse culture, and uh, it was, I, learned, I learned as much from them as they did from me. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, well, that would, be, that would be pretty fascinating to be able to spend two years over there and, and garner some of, the, some of their techniques and knowledge of horses because they've been doing that for thousands of years. And, uh, and then, as you said, uh, to help them improve on, on some of their techniques and the way that they were doing things. Now, did, did I understand that you were given an Arabian stallion while you were there? Oh, yes, I was. Yes, I was. I was given, and, and tell you how smart them guys are over there. They knew what it cost to get a horse back to the United States. It was going to cost me over $10,000 to get that horse back. And I kept that horse for two years. It was a five-year-old, beautiful gray stallion that one of the, the shakes gave me over there. And uh, at the end of it, when I got ready to come home, I gave the horse back to him, and he just grinned. He just knew what he was. That, <laughs> I had that horse. I had that horse spinning. I had that horse. I mean, I, I could ride that horse with a, a seagrass string. I mean, he was he was really, really a good horse. A stallion, a five-year-old stallion when I got it. And uh, wow. uh, that <laughs> that guy that gave me that horse, Imad was his name, Shaky Mod. He, he laughed all the way. He said, I got this horse trained. It cost me nothing. <laughs> That's how smart they are. <laughs> oh gosh, I'd have been tempted, I guess, to have raised that ten thousand to bring him back home. I suppose, but uh, but he knew what he was doing when he gave it to you, didn't he? Oh yeah, he did. He did. He did. I would like to have him here, but I, you know, I would have. Uh, uh, I had too, too many of these wild horses waiting for me at home, and so uh, right. So that's uh, but uh, that was he was really a good horse. I miss him every day. Oh wow, wow! Well, that is that is certainly a fascinating uh, period of time that you spent over there, and uh, and again appreciate the service that you provided uh, because that that I'm sure has helped build relationships with a lot of folks from the time that you were there. Hey Fred, we're going to take a real quick break and uh, and do a little little commercial spot here. Uh, to inform some folks about some things. But when we come back, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, our Wild Horse and Burrow program and some of the things that are happening with that. Uh, you serve as chairman of the advisory board there. So we want to find out a little bit more about what's going on with our wild horses and burrows here in the country. But uh, we'll do that when we come right back, and we'll be talking more with Fred in just a moment. 
but we do want to make you aware of the fact that we are having our fourth annual gathering uh, of Rendezvous 2017, and that is to raise money to help the Alzheimer's Association and the National Parkinson's Foundation. And that's going to be taking place at Loretta Lynn's Ranch in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee, just about an hour west of Nashville. There's beautiful trail riding. Uh, Loretta has uh, many, many attractions on her property. Her museum is there, Western Town. And uh, uh, we've got great, great performers that are coming in to entertain folks. And all of that takes place June 1st through the 3rd. Uh, you can come and stay for the entire three days, or you can just come for the concerts on Friday and Saturday night. But you can find out all the information on Rendezvous 2017, taking place at Loretta Lens Ranch in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee, uh, June 1st through the 3rd. And that information can be found on our website at equestrianlegacy.net. We're going to listen to a great song by Marianne Kennedy called We Share the Earth. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about our wild horses with Fred in just a moment on Equestrian Legacy Radio's Saddle Up America, heard around the world, streaming live online and on demand at equestrianlegacy.net. Horses run across the prairie, eagles sail upon the wind, coyotes howl at the moonlight, we share the earth within, dolphins swimming in the ocean, in the Share the earth within. Don't 
talking with Fred Wool, who is the chairman of the Bureau of Land Management's Wild Horse and Bureau uh, Advisory Board. And uh, Fred, there's, a, there's always a lot of interest in America's wild horses and uh, what they represent as far as the heritage uh, of the West. And um, maybe some misunderstanding about how the wild horses are managed and handled. And, and first of all, BLM has a uh, and I think I learned this from you the other day when we were kind of chatting a little bit. You've got the BLM that handles the federal lands, and then you have uh, uh, the wild horses are on, and then you have some states that handle their wild horses separately on state correct. lands. Is that correct? Correct. correct. Yeah. That, that, that is correct. Yeah. See, in, in, in 1971, Congress passed the Free Roaming Wild Horse and the Borough Act, which gave the horses that were there at that time, the right to be there, part of the overall ecosystem. Uh, they, did, they formed 179 herd management areas on about 30 million acres. Now, those, those uh, horses were becoming part of the ecosystem. They did not uh, make those horses the primary animal there. That was not set, a, set aside strictly for the horses because you had elk, you had antelope, you had deer, you had sheep, you had, I mean, uh, Rocky Mountain sheep. You also had cattle and you also had regular sheep running out there. They become part where that they were legal to be there. And it's an overall management of that area. And since that 1971 law was passed, uh, we have... Uh, adopted out about 103,000 horses. At the time when that law was passed, there were 17,000 uh, 17, horses running out there wild. Since we passed the law in 71, we found homes for 103,000 horses. There's over 70,000 horses still running out there on the range, and the BLM has another 45 or so thousand 
horses in some kind of corral situation. So the wild horses have done really well in the, in that period of time. Yeah, the numbers have grown tremendously, and of course, uh, uh, more horses adopted out than what there was initially to begin with. Um, uh, where, where, where is the conflict and the confusion that people have as far as what BLM is trying to accomplish? And um, I guess, what does the advisory board's role play in all of that? Well, our our, our role as an advisory board is to advise the Bureau on the management of these horses. We make recommendations. We don't make, make laws. We don't make regulations. We make recommendations, and BLM can either take them or, or not. But on the board, we have nine positions, and each one represents a, a uh, specific aspect of management of these these lands. We have a wildlife person. We have a research person. We have a humane advocate on there. We have a, I mean, you know, wildlife, uh, I said that, but we have all sorts of resource person. I mean, we have every, every aspect of it, a rancher on there. And so uh, uh, we try to get together to make good sound recommendations to help manage these these horses and uh these horses have done really 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 well i mean from from 17,000 horses in 1971 to well over 200,000 horses they have done really really well they have multiplied for themselves one of the big key elements or controversies is people do not read the act, they take what they read on Facebook, and everybody knows Facebook's true. I think it was Abraham Lincoln said, everything on Facebook is true. And, uh, <laughs> and so yeah, and he can't tell a lie, so we know that's yeah. That's right, yeah. that's right, that's right. And so, uh, you know, there's one of the things is that this land was was set aside strictly for horses. That the, and it was not. It just made the horse part of that overall eco system. One of the other things that people don't really understand is like here where I'm at in the hills of Arkansas, I can run a cow and a calf on or a horse on three to five acres year round. Not having to not not giving them any feed or anything. That that we have that much that much that much uh, grass and that much rain. Out there there's some places where it takes three to five hundred acres per cow or per horse. And where I get about 40 inches of rain here a year, places out there get under 6 inches of rain a year. So it's a different thing. And when you're, when you're sitting at home and you're looking out and you're seeing all your green, green grass and you're saying, well, why don't they leave the horses alone? Well, you was to put two horses in your front yard and let them eat, they couldn't live there. There wouldn't that's be right. enough grass for them. And so that's what happens out there. Uh, cattle numbers, livestock numbers have dropped substantially. The last three to three years or so, they've been in a really bad drought out there. Uh, BLM has, has reduced livestock numbers over 50% because there wasn't enough graze, there wasn't enough uh, water, but nobody restricts the horses. And so uh, uh, that's part of the problem that we have is to try to find a way that we can 
uh, take care of these horses. I love these wild horses. They've been really good to me, but we have to manage them. Uh, it's just like anything that you have. Cattle, we can manage. Uh, sheep, we can manage. Deer, if we get too many deer, we can have an extra long, extra long hunting season. Elk, we can have an extra long hunting season. Uh, horses, man has to manage them in, in some some way. Right, right, and and so the so the situation becomes you have a, a ever growing population of horses and uh, uh, a challenge with the pasture that's available for them so that that they can survive and, uh, and they have to survive along with the other wildlife and, uh, uh, livestock that really shares the same area out there. Correct. So, uh, Correct. Uh, so, so what is, what is the answer to the ever growing horse population? And, uh, you know, in addition to the adoption programs, that are available to folks is is that working as well as it should or um it's getting better gary it's getting better uh we got to as low as we was only finding homes for about a thousand horses a year now we're up to over three about 3300 horses have found homes and it's a lot due to our partnership with the the mustang heritage foundation uh they're doing a really good good job about that uh but uh, one of the things that is what we as a board have been trying to do and we're getting a lot of kickback on this is uh uh, uh to, to doing some birth con control on the mares uh we actually wanted to space some mares and turn them out that way we wouldn't have to you know they could live out their lives and uh, and there's some of this uh, chemically darting mares now. That's the big thing with these humane groups. They want to dart these mares, uh, hunt them down, if you will, and shoot them with a dart and uh, uh, keep them from uh, settling or getting pregnant. And uh, and so I mean I think it's a blending of all these types of manners that we're going to have to use to 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 do this uh and so uh but every time the bureau of land Ma management does something or tries to do something there's three or four lawsuits filed <coughs> currently i think there's about 21 or 22 lawsuits pending against the bureau of, of land management about these horses yeah and uh and, uh, and... now go ahead i was going i was going to say and and uh Another aspect that people don't understand is that if I file a suit against a government agency, if the court takes the case, the government has to pay my lawyer's fees. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, which, so, so, you know, it, which isn't, you know, right. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things to where people need to educate themselves. And a lot of it is, is in the past fault. I mean, it's just like uh, how you you uh, uh, present things, and you know. But you know, our nation can't get to can't get together on a lot of things. Uh, the the abortion issue is one that people can't get get together on, and I mean, there's all sorts of things like that. But 
we have to do what is best for the environment. We have to be good stewards of the uh, resource. We have to be sure that what we're doing, these wild horses are in no danger of being uh, uh, extinct. There's, uh, they have done remarkably well, and there's a romance that goes with these these wild horses, and that, uh, uh, you know, I think they're part of our overall uh, heritage. And I yeah. can actually tell you that I visited with tons of ranchers, and everyone that I talked with, they do not want the horses taken out because to them it's part of their uh their heritage. They like to see them too. They just want to manage, just like they have to manage their livestock. Uh, they want the U.S. government to manage uh, their livestock. Right, 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 right. Well, and, and there was a lot of controversy, uh, Fred, a few months ago about uh, some rumors as far as euthanasia, mass euthanasia of these horses, and that is not the case. If I understand no, correctly. it's not. It's, it's not, Gary. Here's, here's the the, the the deal on that. Uh, currently, the Bureau of Land Management has about forty-five thousand horses in kind in some kind of corral uh, a situation. It's costing us taxpayers about fifty million dollars a year for that. That includes our our short-term holding and long-term holding. And when our overall budget is somewhere between seventy and eighty million dollars a year having two-thirds of it for pastures for horses that we can't find homes for, that's not a, a sustainable approach to this. Now, there is, you know, something in the, in the law that allows the Bureau to, to sell these horses, and those horses that are not sound to be sold, then uh, humanely euthanize them. And so what the, what the board did is, we voted eight two one for the bureau to comply with the law, the 1971 Wild Horse and Burrow Act, which which you know states that. Uh, and uh, uh, we got all. I got over fifteen fifteen hundred hate hate letters on that deal. Uh, you know that uh, threaten threaten my life. You know and things of this nature. And so. Uh, it's an emotionally charged thing, and all I want people to do is to educate themselves on the overall thing. Don't take what you read on on Facebook or any of that as the fact, as the truth. Educate yourself. Read about it. Study about it. Uh, and and learn as much as you can, and then make up your mind what's the what's the best best thing to do. Everybody that knows me, everybody that has ever talked with me, know that I do not want to kill any horse. However, I am a, a realist in that, just like a lot of them folks don't like to shoot elk or shoot, shoot deer, it's just like if I had them two horses in the front yard, they ain't going to make it. And so I All would right. much rather that, 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 that elk be served on my dining t- table than to starve to death and have a very poor uh, life. And so, uh, uh, you know, I would much rather, you know, humanely shoot it and have it and uh, that way. Right, right. That well, it sense. is. It's just, 
It does. And as you said, it's a very uh, emotionally charged issue, but uh, uh, we have to be realistic about uh, uh, the situation and horses that are no longer sound and, and are not adoptable. Um, uh, there has to be a solution to that. And uh, well, there, as you mentioned, yeah. As you as you mentioned earlier, the horse population has multiplied because of the management programs have been in place. And uh, so, if you if you're concerned about the wild horses and want to get involved, is there a website that they can visit, Fred, that they can learn more about what BLM's policies are and and what actually is happening? Yes, there is. Rather, yes, there is, Gary. BLM BLM dot gov. BLM dot gov. BLM. Okay. You know, and you know, and uh, uh, one of the things about this, I told you, I got fifteen hundred uh, messages, you know, threatening my life to the, all that kind of stuff. Well, I there was one that kind of struck me a little bit, and so I emailed her back and said, "Well, instead of it's it, 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 it's kind of like this." I actually asked her. I said, "Well, how many of these horses do you want?" She said, "Oh, I don't have any place." I said, well, how many horses do you want to take care of? If you'll take care of them, I'll bring them home here. Oh, I don't have any money for that. I said, well, instead of, you know, if you can't be a solution to the problem, don't be a problem your, your, your own self. Well, this young lady contacted folks in, in Missouri about using some of these, these wild, wild horses for police departments and things of this nature and she's working right now to get that to that that done to those people that have mounted patrols uh are going to get this so and and instead of standing back and complaining and throwing throwing rocks she's making an effort to help out and that's what i wish everybody everybody else would do and it's it's easy to sit on my kitchen table and throw rocks at everybody but it takes a lot of work to get out there and try to make a difference. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, people need to get involved and, and come up with creative ideas like, uh, utilizing these horses for mounted patrols. And I'm sure that there are other areas that they could be used to help adopt and place more of the wild Mustangs and help solve the problems instead of contributing to the problems and uh and uh, i know your love for the wild mustang and horses and uh, again i've got to thank you for your service and the time that you're spending uh as an advisory board member and chairman of this and uh not an easy thing to do and uh, uh it takes commitment and and a real caring attitude uh to be able to do that type of thing um well, We're going to have to have you back on the show. We're going to have to have you back on the show. We're just about to run out of time. They're going to cut me off here in a minute. But, uh, Fred, you, you've been a great guest and uh, look forward to having you back again and look forward to seeing you at it at Branson because what you're doing out there uh, to highlight and show what these Mustangs can do uh, is a big help in itself. So thank you for that as well. Well, Gary, thank you for that. Since we've been doing our shows up there, we've actually adopted out about 50 horses. And, well, that's uh, great. I, I follow up on these horses. I can tell you where each horse is, and uh, I, I can tell you how they're doing and all that. And it's a, it's a pretty cool deal to be able to, to do something like that. You know, uh, um, 
you know, uh, adopting that one horse might not make much of a difference in the overall numbers, but it'll surely make a difference to that one horse. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a great way to look at that. Great way to look at that. Well, Fred, thanks so much again for being with us and we look forward to talking with you again and seeing you soon. Come see us in June. We'd love to have you I will. join hey, us. For hey, Gary, yes, sir. Can I have about 30 seconds? Sure. Because uh, I've got a good a friend. He's gone on now, but his name was Larry McWhorter. And he wrote a poem, a really short poem, that I'd like to sh to, to share with you all today uh, because it kind of sums up me and a lot of the things that, that I've done. The early pre-dawn silence is like music to the ears of the rested and contented who take the time to hear. I've missed that pre-dawn silence not found upon the track the world says I must follow. But I shall have it back because once again I've horses to feel my spirit's hope. Dear God, oh, how I've missed them and how they make me hope. Oh, that's great. Gary, that is great. I appreciate you very much. I do. Uh, it's been an honor to, to be here, and uh, uh, I hope I didn't get you in too much trouble. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure to have you, and we look forward to having you back again with us, Fred. So thank you so much. Appreciate it, my friend. You're welcome, buddy. Talk to you later. All right. Well, we've had a great show. We've just about run out of time. We thank you for your time, as always, for joining us for Equestrian Legacy Radio's Campfire Cafe in Saddle Up America. And we invite you to join us again this Sunday for Blessed Trails with Belinda Gale. And then again on Thursday, starting at noon for Campfire Cafe on Equestrian Legacy Radio. Heard around the world, streaming live, online, and on demand at equestrianlegacy.net. Thanks for listening. I met Jesus in Texas, west of Abilene, on my Never thought I'd meet a friend like that, not in my wildest dreams. I met Jesus in Texas, west of Abilene. I don't see how a man who lived 2,000 years ago, he could find me down in Texas, south of Amarillo. He came all the way from a town called Bethlehem, showing how much he loves me and cares for who I am. I met Jesus in Texas, west of Let's
de verdad 